We looked uh, at the first uh, 12 verses uh, of uh, 1 Peter over the last several weeks, uh, kind of setting up uh, as Peter uh, preaches the gospel to uh, those uh, people he identifies as exiles and wanderers. And uh, uh, this uh, section begins with the word, therefore. We're going to unpack a little bit more about what that means. Um, We're going to spend several weeks uh, in this text because it's a rich text uh, about um, the holiness and the obedience uh, that the gospel brings to us. And um, uh, but this morning, we're going to, to set that up, we're going to look primarily just at verse 13, and that'll prepare us to look at the rest of the passage uh, in coming weeks. I'm going to read to you all of 1 Peter 1, uh, 13 through 25, uh, but we're going to focus our attention primarily. We'll mention some of the other things in this text, but we'll focus primarily on verse uh, uh, 13. Uh, 1 Peter 1, 13 through 25, this is the word of God, and, and we should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and All its glory, like the flower of grass, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So uh, what what, what we're going to dig into today uh, and prepares us for uh, these uh, exhortations, these commands that Peter's giving uh, uh, the elect exiles that he's writing to is the power of hope. And, uh, you know, it it is, uh, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting thing because Peter's kind of thesis, his argument in this text is that the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, the hope that we have in his atoning sacrifice, the hope that we have in his resurrection, the hope that we have in his soon coming, all of that is what drives is the energy that provides us um, with obedience and what provides us with the ability to live as obedient children, to follow him uh, because our hope is in him. Now, one of the things that happens to us very often is we, uh, and I think this, this, this happens, uh, well, I know it's happened to a lot of you. I know it. Uh, it happens to me. It's something like this. Uh, you uh, are a follower of Christ, uh, and you struggle with disappointment. Or you struggle with, and, and that disappointment could be that you yourself are not meeting expectations. 
you know you lose your temper. You know there are times where you indulge in uh, alcohol or food or things like that too much. Or you may just be hardened over and cold. You may be in a situation where you uh, uh, spend, uh, too, uh, spend time looking at things that you shouldn't look at. Or, or just you, you, you just struggle uh, in your life. And now you've been a Christian, you, you know, you're a follower of Christ. And yet because you have these things that are ongoing in your life, because you, maybe, maybe it's not even something that's a temptation or a sin, maybe it's just living with an ongoing, unfulfilled desire. But as you struggle with those things, and as you think about those things, your hope becomes smaller and smaller and smaller, and therefore, so does any sort of energy for obedience, any sort of energy for living life the way in which obedient children live with a loving father. And so hope that uh, Peter's getting at in this text is a profound thing for us, and it is a difficult thing for us, and it is something that is uh, of, uh, of, of, well, I, I, I cannot tell you uh, in many ways just how powerful and profound and necessary it is for your life. In fact, I would submit to you today, if you're struggling with temptation today, if you're struggling today with, um, um, well, any number of of issues that would beset you or tempt you, uh, I would venture to guess that the reason why that is happening to you is either one, you are, that your hope in Christ is dim or unclear, or you are placing your hope in lesser hopes or you are um, just, you're just hardened over. One, one of the things that I think is so uh, powerful and profound about the, na- the nature of hope uh, is uh, that it is most clearly seen for us and most clearly powerful and most necessary for us precisely because the world is disappointing, the world is broken, The world is sinful, and we experience pain and suffering and disappointment with ourselves, with others, with our jobs, with our relationships, with all of those things. And so how is it then that this hope is going to be the thing that is going to um, fuel our obedience? Uh, One of the the things that I love to do uh, when I get the chance on Saturday afternoons uh, during... uh, football season as watch college football. And so um, what I was, one of the things that we have at, uh, Marty lets me have this, and is, a, um, is this thing on Saturdays called Goal Line. The Goal Line is awesome because you can watch seven games at once without having a seizure or something like that. You can, you can, you can, you can follow what's going on, and, and what they do is they jump from interesting thing to interesting thing in each game. So you don't have to watch any of the boring stuff, which is the genius of ESPN, because ESPN even makes baseball interesting because, because they take the 30 seconds of excitement that's in a three-and-a-half-hour baseball game. Sorry, Coach and distill it down to 30 minutes, and you're like, wow, I, I should watch more baseball, because that's really exciting. And then, then you actually watch a game on TV, which is the worst way to do it, and you're like, whoa, I thought this was exciting. Anyway, 
So you get to move around between these games and see all these exciting things. Well, uh, there was a game yesterday in Michigan, and uh, it was kind of a big deal. Uh, and uh, it looked like uh, one team had the game in the bag. In fact, they did. And then on the very last play of the game, things go terribly awry, and the team that had been outplayed the whole game won. So when I see this, I think, sorry, guys. Uh, so when, when I see this, my first thought is, that's not the drama. The drama I want to see is the post-game press conference because their coach is a nut and he wears khakis up to here. And I want to see, I want to see what he does in this press conference. This is going to be exciting. So I'm like, where can I find it? Where can I find it? And there is his face is on the screen. He looks, he looks like he's about to be sick. And I'm like, this is interesting. And so, the, you know, the reporters are asking the worst questions, you know, and I'm like, wow, he is showing remarkable self-control and restraint. But the thing that struck me about it was, and the thing that resonated with me and actually kind of changed my attitude about this guy was, they asked him, well, you know, you gave up 23 points and, you know, you've, been, you've had three shutouts in a row you know, did your defense let you down? How do you feel about your defense? How did they play? And he said, we played well enough to win, and we didn't. And I thought, that summarizes a lot of the way I think about life. I played well enough to win, and I didn't. Listen, here's the thing. What Peter is saying to people who are facing chronic illness, unemployment, persecution, maybe even deadly illness, disappointing relationships, disappointing uh, uh, circumstances in life, is that the pathway to living like a follower of Christ is not sheer willpower, although the will is involved, is the hope setting ourselves fully on the hope that is ours in Christ. Okay, Chris, put, put my notes up here. So, so, the, so the drama of life really is these competing hopes, right? We, we set our hopes upon the way uh, uh, maybe someone's going to love us a certain way or maybe someone's going to provide for us or, or maybe healing is going to come a certain way or, or any number of things like that. When, when what Peter says is, listen, this, this world, these things that we think are valuable are perishable. They are passing away. But let me tell you about something that is profound and, and something that is powerful, that is eternal, right? And so as he has spent the first 12 verses in this chapter laying out for those believers and for us the grace of God to us in Christ, the powerful grace of God for us in Christ, the rich, the unbelievable goodness of God to his people in Jesus Christ. And so now at verse 13, he is going to tell us and tell them some things that we need to be busy about. In fact, uh, the image that you have here is the, the, the things that we need to be running to, the things that we need to be uh, energetically pursuing, right? 
And so uh, as, he, as he begins here, that's one of the first things that you have to see is that the imperatives of the Bible, the, the commandments of the scriptures are always first and foremost uh, responses to the saving initiative of God towards us because of the grace of God, because Jesus Christ has taken dead men and made them alive, because of that work, this then therefore is how you live, right? And so a good way for us to look at this verse then is therefore having girded up the loins of your mind, and we're only going to use the word loins one more time because in our culture, loins are what you put on the grill, right? So So, therefore, having girded up the loins of your mind, it's an image of a person who wears flowing garments and tucking the garments into his belt so that he can run and move about freely and quickly without tripping over his clothes. Remember, uh, a few months ago, we looked at Elijah when he girds up his his, uh, robes and runs ahead of Ahab's chariot all those miles, right? Uh, And the part of you that is to be freed by this girding up is your mind, the loins of your mind, right? Uh, Then he goes on, and being sober, it's an image of not being drunk when it comes to spiritual things. It implies alertness and evaluating things correctly because you see clearly and your mind isn't numb with intoxicating influences. Then comes the main verb, and that is the logic of this text, is that the primary uh, imperative in the way in which this was originally written are these words right here. And for the first time in this letter, it's an imperative. It's a command. Hope fully or fix your hope completely. So the first command in this letter is an action you do with your mind and your heart. I I can look at you sitting here today. I can look at you flipping through your bulletin. I can look at you correcting your children. I I can look at you looking over at the good-looking boy or girl across the room. I can can look at you today while you're texting uh, each other or passing notes or whatever it is that you're doing, and I cannot tell whether you're hoping or not. My guess is... To some degree, for many of you, you are hoping at least in something today because you're here, right? Um, But what he's getting at here is it's an action you do with your mind and your heart. It's a command to hope. And hope is not an action of the body. It's an experience of the soul. Peter is commanding us to experience hope. And and here's the thing. about that is. We hear that and we think, how is that possible? How can you command me, given my life, given how I live, given the circumstances that I face, how is it, how can you have the temerity, Peter, to say to me, to hope, hope fully, hope it totally, set your hope on this, right? Well, What we're going to do is we're going to look at these three things that he says to set your hope fully, to gird up the hips of your minds, and for self-control, how these things lead us and provide us with what it is he's, he's getting at. So he says, set your hope fully, right? Now, this word here that's used here for setting your hope fully is a one-time decisive action. It doesn't mean keep setting your hope 
but it means you, you, there's this action where you hear the gospel, where you hear about the work of Jesus Christ, where you hear about his atoning sacrifice, where you hear about his resurrection, where you hear about his coming to make this world right. And you do that and you say, that is what I'm locked in on. That is what I'm moving towards. That is what the world is moving toward. That is the way I will view the world. That is the thing that informs my grieving. That is the thing that informs my disappointment. That is the thing that informs my uh, struggle, right? And so, so the, the hope that we have here is not some sort of, 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 of utopian dream that says somehow or other, I will never experience difficulty. I will never experience pain. No, in fact, in fact, if, if that were the way life was, you wouldn't need hope. But because of the struggle, because of the fallenness of the world, because of its brokenness, because of the remaining rebellion that's in my soul and in your soul, what Jesus does for us to enable us to live in this broken world is he provides for us a clear testimony of who he is and what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do, right? So... So we fix our eyes and our thoughts and our dreams all on Christ, his first and second coming, and all that means. So let me just review for you what he's already told us this means in in, uh, the first 12 verses of this chapter. God has chosen you. God has caused you to be born again to a living hope. God is keeping an inheritance for you, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. God is keeping you through faith so that you won't lose that inheritance. God is refining your faith by fire so that you and he will see, receive praise and honor and glory. You are living lives of love and faith and joy in Christ. The prophets and the angels long or long to see all that God's grace is going to do in your life. And so he's piled up all of these blessings for us. He's piled up all of these realities for us. He's piled up all of this, the, these things that Jesus is and has done for us. And he says, that is the focus of your aspirations. That is the focus of your dreams. That is the focus of the desires of your heart. And, and, and that's good pastoral advice for us because that is a fixed factual reality. It is a fixed factual reality. Jesus has come. Jesus has died. Jesus has risen again. He will come again. And that shapes how I look at my life. Next slide. So as we think about that, what do, how, does, how does this work? Well, he says to gird up our, the hips of our minds, right? So, so what, what we need, how, does this, how does this work for me? What, what the way it works for me is that this truth, that the, the, the proclamation of the gospel, the, the fullness of the heart and the love and the activity of God to me in Jesus Christ is what shapes and directs my life. It is what shapes and directs how I think about my life. It is what shapes and directs my hopes, my dreams, my aspirations, the things that I love, the things that I don't love. That is the, 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 the lens and the, the practical grid through which my life is led. Now, 
the thing that's, that's, uh, that's powerful about this is, is that we gird up our minds, we remind ourselves of these things, and the truth that though we're pilgrims, wanderers, and exiles, we are traveling in the hope and reality of our exodus. I'm certain that Peter had in mind this passage from Exodus 12, uh, 11, about the, 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 the Israelites uh, when they were leaving Egypt and eating the Passover. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So in other words, what he's saying is this, this redemption, this redeeming act of God on your behalf prepares you to move, <laughs> prepares you to take a step, prepares you to follow after him as obedient children. It prepares you to lead lives that are holy. It moves and changes us, right? And so, so one of the things... One of the things that we see about that is that the life of a wanderer, the life of an exile, is hard. It's really hard. And the hope that he's talking about here, the deliverance that he's talking about here, is not simply the deliverance that we ask for when we pray for healing for someone, or the deliverance that we pray for when someone will provide for somebody a job, or, or, or those things. As powerful and as profound as those things are, what he wants us to see is, is that the hope that we have in Christ, the thing, the factual reality, the thing that Jesus is doing, has done, and will do, is so much grander and bigger than that. Those things are consumed and subsumed up into that, right? Next slide. And this all leads to self-controlled lives, right? Obedient children live lives of hope. Now, this, this word for self-controlled is a word uh, that is uh, often uh, can be translated as sober-minded, sober-minded. Now, let me be clear about this, lest you misunderstand me. I am not telling you that hope is a drug. I am not telling you to stop numbing your minds with alcohol and images and order and money and reputation and success or staring at the TV for three hours at night when you come home. That is not what I'm talking about. This numbness uh, is that hope is not something, a drug that simply numbs us from the reality. In fact, I would submit to you that true hope might actually be painful. And the reason why it might actually be painful is because we see and we hear and we believe in the powerful goodness of God and we know who he is, and we look at our world, and we look at our hearts, and we look at our lives, and we sense despair because it doesn't seem like things are very hopeful. Um, this week I've been following as best I can uh, what is happening, not just in South Sudan, but particularly in the village of Mundri, where we have quite a lot of interest. Um, and it is a terrible situation where most of the village appear, appears to have been destroyed. P 
people are scattered. They're living in the bush in the midst of the rainy season, which means they will be susceptible to malaria and to cholera and to dysentery. And desperate people living in the bush will do desperate things to survive. I wish I could tell you as I look and as I read and as I study what is happening to God's people there, that there are good guys and there are bad guys. But as far as I can tell, they're all bad. They're all bad. That's what it looks like to me. And so uh, I look at that and I am reminded as I stand before you today to preach on hope in the same way that I am reminded of the people that I've met with and prayed with this week who are dying. Or as I've talked with people who believe that their marriage is so broken that it's hopeless and are not willing to even ask the question, could God give them what they need to stay married? So is what I'm talking about this morning pie in the sky? Or is it the cry of the heart, the reality that we say to God in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. That is the, probably the most profound and richest expression of hope that you find in the scriptures. The New Testament church cried out in its struggle and in its persecution, come quickly, come quickly, come quickly. And so that is our ultimate hope that Jesus Christ will bring to bear fully at his revelation, his grace and his power and restore everything that has been robbed and broken and marred and defaced in this creation. So, so it's not just numbing us to that. In fact, it may even be heightening our awareness of the brokenness of the world and causing us in our lament and our grief to cry out to Jesus to establish his grace and his gospel and his kingdom and his power once and for all. So how does this work in our lives? Well, well, because God gets the last word in Christ, hope drives our living. Listen, listen, our God raises the dead. Secondly, grace has reigned, is reigning, and will reign. The, the, the gospel is not just some little message that comes along and scoops us up and gets a handful of us to heaven. It is the future reality that we have entered into here and now that will sweep across this planet and cover it like the oceans do. And so what I can do now is I can grieve the loss and the struggle and the suffering and the tumors and, and, and the clogged arteries and the broken governmental systems. I can grieve all of those, but know that they don't get the last word that I can grieve now in hope. Whenever I uh, do the liturgy of burial uh, for uh, folks, uh, I always include this passage. It's not in the, uh, the Presbyterian liturgy at, at the burial, at the graveside, and it's not in the Episcopal liturgy. They should put it in there. Uh, because I think it expresses 
not only our hope, but our responsibility. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we, and, and by the way, if you're grieving today, that doesn't mean that you don't have hope. Let's be clear about that. That's not 50 50, either, or, uh, either you're grieving or you're hopeful. I would submit to you that you're probably, uh, well, you, we grieve, we see the sadness and the brokenness, uh, but we look in hope, right? For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words." right? So that is the, that is the, the responsibility that, that this hope lays upon us. And, and I want to say something very directly this morning as your pastor, as people, as people that I love and people that I strive to love better. Um, but we as a congregation must repent of the sin of unencourageability. Because when the gospel is proclaimed to many of us, when the news of the grace of Jesus Christ is laid before us, many of our hearts respond with, yeah, but. And in fact, for many of us, we make our unencourageability because of our difficulties and our struggles and our disappointment with God a source of our righteousness. We stand back from one another, and when someone comes to us with a good word to remind us of the power and the love of Jesus Christ, we will actually think in our hearts, you're silly. You're immature. You're Pollyannish. That's of little consequence. And that, my friends, is why you struggle to obey. It's because the goodness of God does not give you a vision for the hope of a world restored, of the dead raised, and the grace of God having its full redeeming effect across the whole of the planet and the whole of our lives. Forgive me, forgive me. But my friends, the source of your life in Christ is the hope of glory. Let's repent of dabbling in lesser hopes Let's encourage one another as we grieve in hope. And let's be clear about the goodness and the grace of God, that when we sing God is good, 
that simple song, it is the source of our lives together. Pray with me. Lord, um, I, I thank you today for your goodness and your love and your mercy. I thank you today that uh, you gave these words to um, simple, struggling people just like us. I thank you for uh, the grace that is ours in Christ and the hope that it gives us. Lord, forgive us. Give us the gift of repentance, of of trusting and hoping in that which is perishable. I pray today that you would move us by how profound it is uh, to be chosen and to be protected and to have an inheritance and to have a redemption that is the longing of angels. Lord, I pray today for the dying among us. I pray today for the sick among us. I pray today for the hardened and the cold-hearted among us. I pray for the cynical. I pray for the broken that the hope that is ours and the uh, work of Jesus Christ for us would cause us to move towards grieving and hope and in grieving and hope lead lives as obedient children with a loving Father who's preparing us for glory. Lord, we ask these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.